0: Gerard Fox. And the verdict is in. And for all of you subscribers, and now there are thousands of you out there, which is fantastic. And I told you the guests would get very special. This is another one. This is our 20th episode. And next year, we're going to probably think about a radio program. How about that? Hmm? All right. Today, I have Richard and He's not just any guest. Uh, Richard has had more than 12 years as an assistant district attorney in Kings County, New York, in Brooklyn, where he rose to the position of deputy chief of the appeals bureau. He was trained by one of the leading appellate attorneys in the country who would one day serve as a solicitor general of the United States. He spent most of his first 12 years of his career in a rather academic setting of appellate courts and dealing with complex legal issues as opposed to the nitty-gritty of the New York City criminal trial work. That means he was focused on the law. That changed, however, in the latter part of his tenure at the DA's office when he began to get involved in trial work as the legal advisor to major investigations and trials in the office. Now, this is a big job, and it means he knows about all those gritty cases that were going on at the time. One case in particular brought him in contact with lawyers at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. At the end of the case, he was recruited to join the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. Now, that's probably one of the most prominent offices of all the U.S. attorneys throughout the entire country. He spent nearly 14 years as an assistant U.S. attorney, rising to the position of chief of the public integrity section. At the department of justice that he finally became a trial lawyer and we're going to talk about some of the cases he worked on as chief of public integrity i should tell you that uh, now uh, richard is a top consultant it's hard to get him on a show like this it's hard to get him on a case he is much sought by some of the biggest corporations in america and these are institutions that want him to do internal investigations uh, to make sure they're complying with the law and to root out any possible wrongdoing uh, he does due diligence investigations on behalf of companies acquiring other companies to see if the acquisition target is involved in violations of the law he does asset searches to enforce judgments he does compliance work with companies and helps them uh, secure a settlement with various government agencies he is an advisor to companies that might be potentially involved in solvency. He's an expert witness in bankruptcy proceedings. He's a chief restructuring officer. He's been a trustee of a creditor trust. He has essentially uh, handled every position of importance that you could have other than being a judge uh, under the law. And I can tell you from having worked with him on a case, which I will not mention, it was an arbitration that went very well, that he has a nose for rooting through financial records and corporate records, even stale, old, thousands and thousands of corporate records and telling you what crimes were committed. And you know, for all of you out there, you should understand companies can commit crimes because their executive officers have fiduciary duties and their subordinate officers have many, 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 many laws to comply with depending on the industry. So having said all of that, Richard? We are delighted to pry you away from all the other appointments and shows you have, and to have you here for a good twenty to twenty-five minutes. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jerry, and thank you for that gracious introduction. And it's it's great to see you again.
0: Yes. Now, maybe you can talk about, or spend a few minutes talking about the kind of cases you worked on as chief of public integrity at the Justice Department, because the Justice Department's in the news a lot but let's talk about some of the cases that you handled.
1: Sure, sure. It really was kind of a, a dream job being chief of public integrity for a major U.S. attorney's office, especially one as interesting as the Eastern District. Eastern District is is headquartered in Brooklyn, New York, but it also includes Staten Island, Queens, New York, and all of Long Island. So you have a huge, huge territory with a lot of interesting cases that emerge from there. You have two International airports, so you have a lot going on. And needless to say, it was Brooklyn, New York, there was a lot of corruption. So you know I had my hands full. and I had I had you know different types of cases. There were a lot of pure public corruption cases. I mean I had a, a case where I investigated and ultimately convicted a New York City councilman who was actually a leading candidate to become Speaker of the City Council he had solicited a 1.5 million dollar bribe from a developer who was you know wanting to to build a major supermarket in Red Hook Brooklyn you know which was a depressed area of Brooklyn at the time and this was going to be a big development and and this individual solicited a 1.5 million dollar bribe from him there's just a lot of other you know bribery cases we used to call them roundup cases where we'd you know we arrest 20 building inspectors for taking bribes 18 school custodians for defrauding the department of education corrupt department of transportation officials I investigated you know a couple of US congressmen and so there were you know there were very interesting corruption investigations but then there were also you know cases involving fraud against the government and in Brooklyn there was a lot of construction fraud and those construction fraud cases both involved bribery of government officials and defrauding government programs. And this is this is why you and I, you know, became, became acquainted, did a lot of work with with involving contractors who were defrauding the government by falsely claiming they were complying with government programs like the Minority and Woman Owned Business Enterprise Program. And a lot of these construction fraud cases also involved organized crime. You know, you had organized crime figures extorting the construction contractors, the construction contractors, bribing the public officials. And, and so it was, it, it was you know, pretty interesting and exciting.
0: Let me stop you there. Now, for those of you who think that these kinds of crimes and the organized syndicated criminal network and uh, bribes and government officials taking bribes and people flouting laws or greasing their palms by asking for bribes, that this is all on TV – uh, Richard's here to tell you no it isn't. TV's based on real life, right Richard?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this goes on every day and it's it's really part of the fabric of doing business in New York, unfortunately. But, you know, in addition to those sorts of nitty-gritty cases, I also handled, you know, a number of corporate fraud cases, you know, that were international in nature. And I I can I'll, I'll tell you spend a, a minute or two briefly on on one in particular which was kind of a quintessential Brooklyn corporate fraud case because it involved everything. It started off as as a routine bribery of a building inspector for overlooking a building and building uh, violations. That person was willing to cooperate with us. and, And during interrogations, he admitted to us that there was an expediter who was offering him a bribe to find him a corrupt fire marshal would be willing to change a preliminary fire report from saying that the fire was caused by arson to saying that it was an accident. So this obviously you know, was pretty interesting to us. So we began investigating that. We wired him up to talk with the expediter. It turned out it was a major warehouse fire in Brooklyn. And that the company whose, whose goods were stored in the warehouse had filed a $200 million insurance claim. So obviously this was very interesting to us. We put in an undercover fire marshal who recorded his conversations. Ultimately, you know, this blew up into bribery of a public official, arson, uh, securities fraud case because the company was defrauding its investors by falsely representing that it was doing much better than it was. It had a fraction of the inventory in that warehouse that it claimed to the insurance company, so it was an insurance fraud there was a $200 million bank fraud because they were defrauding their banks, you know, on their asset-based loans. And then it turned out there was a half a billion dollar money laundering scheme involving them laundering their money, you know, all over the world. And so that's the sort of corporate fraud case that you would get in Brooklyn. You know, it couldn't just be white shoe, you know, law firms and C-suites had to be arson and, you know, and money laundering and and everything else. And the other interesting th- part of that case was that there was a parallel bankruptcy proceeding and this ended up being important for my career because I worked for 2 years kind of alongside a bankruptcy trustee who was pursuing the assets of the company for the investors. I mean for you know for the for the shareholders and and the creditors. And so we became friends and I assisted him you know, simply by really not squashing everything he wanted to do quite often federal prosecutors kind of prevent everybody else who has any connection with their case from doing their job I wasn't like that and and I you know kind of allowed him to do his job and and he assisted me and you know when I ultimately left the government a few years later first call I got the second day on the job was from this bankruptcy trustee who wanted me to be his investigator in a 400 million dollar bankruptcy ponzi scheme. And that's ended up being, you know, one of the types of work that I've been doing for the past 10 years is working for bankruptcy trustees in unraveling fraud schemes that caused their bankruptcies, recovering, you know, the assets tracing and recovering the assets for for the estate and helping them to file lawsuits to recover those funds.
0: Now tell me when you're brought into something where your client suspects there there has been fraud. If you're brought in by a company that believes it's been defrauded or that some of its employees or subsidiaries violating the law and has been for years, what's the process you go through to investigate? Your general approach in terms of either looking at documents, interviewing witnesses, looking at government reports, trying to shake things out. How do you do it? It's your formula.
1: Sure. Well, you know, the first thing you do is to find out everything that is known up to that point in time. So, you know, we'll I'll, number one, I will kind of bring to the table the people on my team who I think will be necessary to achieve the client's objectives. That's usually going to be, you know, one of my crack forensic accountants. I have one of my forensic accountants is a former federal agent who was you know in my judgment the best federal investigator in New York and or there may be a need for a data analytics expert in order to analyze you know a volume of data so i kind of bring the people i need and then we sort out what do we need to review in order to fully understand the problem and then you know get to the bottom of of it for for the client
0: and does that involve I mean, interviews of employees. In one of your large cases, how many employees have you interviewed?
1: You know, we have one ongoing case where we've interviewed 46 people. That's a lot. You know, I'd say most cases will involve fewer than that. But it's going to kind of depend upon the size of the enterprise, the scope of the issues. But most, most cases are going to involve a review of documents, you know, analysis of financial records, interviews of witnesses sometimes if the if the documentation is sufficiently voluminous you know there may be you know a need to utilize data analytic support in order to analyze a huge volume of data in order to identify the relevant documents that we then you know eyeball
0: yeah you we say documents are there a great deal of emails and texts that you end up seeing
1: Absolutely I mean you know often, I mean, I'm involved in a case right now where, you know, we're reviewing the laptop computers, iPhones, emails, text messages, you know, involved to determine whether an employee was involved in misconduct. And, you know, in the analysis of that data, again, we have sophisticated software programs that assist us in kind of quickly and efficiently analyzing the data and identifying red flags, you know, for further further scrutiny, uh, and that can then lead to who to interview, what questions to ask, what issues to follow up on. Have
0: you had to go to the original server or the uh, place where things are backed up to lift deleted emails from the server?
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the good things about working for the company I work for, I work for Kroll Associates. So it's, you know, one of the largest international investigations, risk mitigation, and advisory services firms in the world. And we have one of the one of the leading cyber practices. So I have a a large stable of colleagues who do just that, you know, who are able to extract data we need to analyze. Do forensic analysis to recover deleted data to the extent possible. It's not always possible, but to the extent it's possible, they'll they'll recover it. And if if something has been intentionally deleted, actually analyze you know the circumstances to be able to render an opinion on whether on whether it was intentionally deleted or not. So I have that support you know if 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 necessary in order to to analyze whatever computer data there is.
0: Yes, and this is important because in civil litigation, uh, if you're suing another company and you believe there's fraud or that the evidence that the other party is holding can help prove your case, you will send them a letter, what's called a non-spoilation letter, where you will cite to them the governing law that lets them know that now that there's an anticipated or actual claim against them, they can't spoil or destroy evidence. Now, that doesn't mean that companies and people don't do that. And many of those companies and people don't realize that you can lift the deleted emails off of the server unless they've gotten rid of the server. And even then, you know, in theory, there's other ways with the cloud now to find the stuff. And what is important, and I'll make a note for lawyers, practicing lawyers out there, is when you make a document request, if you ask the other side for all their emails and all their texts, it's important that you ask for those that they actually still have on file and those that have been deleted the courts will enforce that request 9 out of 10 times and that will allow you to bring in the type of people that work with richard and there's you know pockets of them throughout the country these are very specialized people who can root you know essentially go down into the roots of emails and texts and find out where we can lift the deleted text and email which of course is usually the most incriminating and then there's an issue of whether they violated the spoliation order that you know applies so um very very important stuff and the fact that richard has this wide depth is huge now you do all kinds of consulting now that you're no longer working for the justice department or the u.s attorney's office for example you will uh, serve as a monitor can you explain what it means to be a monitor
1: sure and this is actually probably the principal reason i became a consultant when i was leaving the government and considering what i wanted to do i saw that there was you know there were opportunities and this was you know back in 2009 to serve as what's known as an integrity monitor and you know that is a private you know professional who's appointed typically by a court or by a government agency to oversee a company uh, that's gotten into, that's, you know, gotten to regulatory or criminal uh, problems can arise in a whole kind of variety of contexts. It could be part of a settlement agreement where the company is required to accept a monitor for a period of years, or it could be in the context of a company wanting to do business with the government and the government is insisting on a monitor because of prior regulatory difficulties the company has had. And the monitor it's a great role for someone like me because it's it involves an investigative function, a compliance function, and you know you kind of sit between the company and the government and you both tell the co- the government whether the company is complying with its obligations and you help the company realize what it needs to do. To meet the expectations of the government and to get the government off its back. So it's really kind of a, it's, it's a hybrid role, a really unique role in, in the legal profession. And I find it particularly rewarding because unlike as a prosecutor, where really my tools were investigate, don't investigate, prosecute, don't prosecute, um, you know, determine what the sentence is here, you know, it's helped the company to become rehabilitated. So that it's a good corporate citizen again and is recognized as such by the government so that it's not you know, subject to this sort of special heightened scrutiny.
0: Well, that's huge, by the way. And do companies sometimes come to you ahead of time realizing that they're, they've stepped over the line with respect to some rules, regulations, or laws, and they want to go in with their civil or their criminal lawyers to the government and the agency involved and say – Hands up, we did something wrong, but we've already got this great guy and company, Richard Fonan and Kroll, they're monitoring us. So we're 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 on a self-rehabilitated program. Does that happen?
1: It does happen. And it's a, I think it's a very effective maneuver sometimes to head off, you know, government imposition of a monitor that may, you know, even be, you know, more more significant or more intrusive and it's important for a company to choose someone who's independent and who the government will respect but you know that does happen essentially someone like me is called in to do an independent investigation figure out if the company really does have the problems that the government suspects it may have and then Help the government help the company implement reforms so that it reforms itself before the government, you know, gets to the point of of wanting to charge it or, or even you know, formally formally announce an investigation.
0: Yeah, and now you, when you worked for the government, you worked principally in New York, but now as a consultant, you work all over the place. Correct?
1: No, it's true. It's true. I mean, I, one of my monitoring engagements, I, I monitored one of the tenth largest. One of the ten largest banks in the world, and I, I you know was traveling throughout Asia and Europe in that in that capacity as the monitor of this financial institution, and so I mean I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in Tokyo and Hong Kong and Vietnam and Singapore and and uh, so you know that was fascinating and professionally very rewarding to work with people all over the globe.
0: Do you speak any other languages?
1: You know, I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Uh, We have lawyers in our firm that speak twenty different languages. But um, I was just curious in your travels. Well, the uh, I want to give a little testimonial here. I've worked with Richard Uh, when you suspect fraud, and you need to compile a record of it because you can't. And you just saw it with the election. You can't come with just a general sampling of fraud. You have to get your hands around. The totality of it, and be able to put it on a scale almost so that you know the reviewing court knows how much and how pervasive the fraud was. And of course, one of the problems that you saw with the election fraud is it takes a lot of time because, for example, for something like that, you have to interview hundreds of people in each state. Uh, Have them flip and turn on some people who were directing them to carry out illicit activity. Round up all kinds of evidence that's real, admissible in a court, documents that can be authenticated as false or falsely submitted, and then you have to, in that case, be able to prove that the number of fraudulently procured or submitted or blocked votes would have had an impact on the election, and and. There, it's just not a time frame. You know, that issue becomes one for regulatory reform if you believe that it is an issue and needs to be addressed. But uh, and the point I want to drive home with Richard is that his investigations can take years. Isn't that correct?
1: Some of them, yes. You know, we essentially try to get to the bottom of issues as quickly and efficiently as possible. Monitoring engagements, for instance, sometimes can go on for several years until the government is satisfied that the company has reformed. Internal investigations, they really do, you know, there's a variety of lengths. Sometimes, you know, after a couple of months of, of looking at into a matter, you conclude that there's not a problem. Uh, it really just depends yes. on the issue, the company, the scope of the problem the availability of records and individuals with knowledge to be interviewed. And that's one of the good things about this sort of work. And and it was the same thing when I worked for the Department of Justice. It's all different. Every case is different. You know, there's variations on a theme, but, you know, there's always something new which keeps it fresh and interesting.
0: Well, I can tell you that the most amazing thing about uh, working with uh, Richard was that we had a case that involved you know, if I had a spectrum of illegal, illicit, and fraudulent activities, it involved maybe a half of them or more. <laughs> you know, so he had to be able to switch between uh, money laundering, pension fraud, uh, tax evasion, uh, fraudulent conveyances, violations of regulations that comply that have to do with the uh, construction industry, bribes, this, that, and the other thing, and be able to categorize it and summarize it for, you know, the the judge, in this case, an arbitrator, so that they could understand it and and it wouldn't be minimized. Richard, we're almost at the close here. How do people get in touch with you? Because you are one of the most sought after advisors, counselors, investigators, experts, monitors. How do they get in touch with you?
1: Sure, sure. Well, my email is richard.fawnen.com. F-A-U-G-H-N-A-N at Kroll, K-R-O-L-L dot com. And my phone number is 212-833-3274. That's 212-833-3274. And my firm's site is www.kroll, K-R-O-L-L dot com.
0: And I will tell the audience out there of corporate executives, general counsel, people who own small businesses, people in the construction industry, finance industry, banking industry, film industry, any industry that gets audited or that has legal issues that have to be investigated or they want their own expert, Richard prepares reports that are not just thorough and and, uh, can be understood by a judge or a jury, but are admissible because he understands you know, from having been a prosecutor, what is admissible proof, which is a whole other subject we won't get into today. Richard, great to see you. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Stay safe there in New York. Thank you for being on this show, The Verdict is In.
1: Thank you, Jerry. Have a great holiday.